Hi everyone, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice, and we continue our summer hiatus looking back at an episode with journalist Brenton Mock, who we've talked to a couple of times here on the podcast. This is episode 94, in which Brenton, who writes for City Lab, shares with us his great article in which he talks to us about a piece he wrote on the spillover effects of violence on black Americans. It's a subject I think too many of us would miss if not for the observational genius and writing of somebody like Brenton Mock. So here it is again, our episode 94 with Brenton Mock on the spillover effects of violence on black Americans. When police kill an unarmed black man, we know the family and the community suffer. But what about other people, particularly black Americans, beyond those closest to the victim? What's the impact on them? The spillover effect of police killings and other violence on black Americans. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer of our dysfunctional and awfully messy criminal justice system. And still really, really happy to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. How many times... Just in the last four years, how many times have we heard news reports like this? A killing by police and the person who died is a black man and he was unarmed. Listen. No family should have to endure this pain and suffering as they try to seek answers for execution of their loved one who is only holding a cell phone, shot 20 times. I'm like, I still got my hands in there. I say, no, I just got shot. And I'm standing there, I'm like, sir, why did you shoot me? And his, ex- and his words to me, he said, I don't know. Demonstrators marched through the streets of Sacramento, California's capital city, for a second day Friday. They were protesting the police shooting of an unarmed 22-year-old black man last week. He was judged, he was sentenced, and he was executed. One shot was fired uh, by Officer Shelby, and a taser was deployed by Officer uh, Tyler Turnbow. I'm going to tell you right here now, there was no gun on the suspect or in the suspect's vehicle. That audio came from The Guardian, USA Today, and Al Jazeera. If you go back and listen to the audio yourself of the family members and friends and loved ones after these incidents, the pain, the suffering comes right through to anyone hearing the voices. We also know how we would feel. We we would feel the same if that had been our loved one. How could it not feel like that? But today, we get a chance to think about a slightly different question, one step away, one step removed from the immediate impact of these tragedies. What about people who aren't part of the families or the close circle of friends, but who learn about these terrible deaths anyway, perhaps through the media? What about those who don't experience violence firsthand, but instead are the peers of those 
who do. Do these experiences impact those who are not right there, but one or even more steps removed? Our guest today has looked at the latest science on this, and he's going to tell us what he found. Brenton Mock is a journalist who writes for the Atlantic's CityLab.com. He covers many justice-related issues, particularly those related to law enforcement. Mr. Mock is also a former justice editor for Grist. He is now based in Pittsburgh. If you haven't yet begun reading CityLab, it's one of the best sources on all of the issues that arise in the urban environment, nationally, locally, even globally, from climate to affordable housing, criminal justice, transportation, changing demographics, gentrification. It is all there. Mr. Mock is our first, our very first repeat guest here on Criminal Injustice. In episode 46, he talked to us about his article about the Department of Justice's deep misunderstanding of urban communities, especially communities of color. New data proved that they were not anti-police, but instead supportive of police and willing to help officers improve public safety. Since then, he's covered the ways that school discipline goes awry, police shootings, and a host of other issues, both broad and deep. Today, we'll discuss his article, Police Killings and Violence Are Driving Black People Crazy, about the spillover effect of violence on black Americans. We'll put a link to the article up on our website. Journalist Brenton Mock, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's great. Your piece uh, relies on a couple of new pieces of scientific research. And let's start with the one that was published in The Lancet, that venerable uh, old journal. This piece dealt with the killings of unarmed black men by police officers. So let's get some context first. Let's set the numbers. Now, the best figures we have are from the Washington Post and the Guardian. They track police killings in the United States, and we find that those killings run to something less than 1,000 a year. The number looks like it'll be up a little bit from the high 900s this year. Uh, And many of those killings involved black men, a disproportionate number, and some of those killings are black men who were unarmed. Uh, Now, the researchers looked at these killings, and we all know, we all guess uh, that they would have a terrible effect on the mental health and emotional well-being of families, the people closest to their circle of friends. But the researchers wanted to take that a step further. Explain what they wanted to do. Yeah, so uh, basically the researchers um, who come from Harvard and Boston College, uh, they basically looked – I'm sorry, Boston University. They basically took data from something called the U.S. Behavioral Risk Factors Surveillance System. B-R-F-S-S. Yeah, and this is a survey that comes – that's run out of the Centers for Disease Control, and it it basically – uh, collects data on thousands and thousands of Americans um, across all demographics on uh, a number of metrics, but a lot of them uh, pertaining to their mental health being, uh, emotional uh, well-being, uh, things of that nature. And so they used the data from that survey and uh, basically crossed it against uh, various uh, reports of police killings that happened uh, specifically in the 2014-2015 time range. And they use that data to see, um, you know, how many Americans reported having poor mental health days uh, after a high-profile 
uh, police killing have been reported. That this is amazing. I mean, I was completely unaware of this database, the behavioral risk factor survey, and yeah. it turns out it's it's there and it's been surveying thousands of Americans all the time. People yeah. reporting into this, so so uh, the data is pretty numerous. And for one, I mean, you have a hundred thousand. Uh, African-Americans who report in on this or who are surveyed. Right. And so the researchers had a lot of rich data to work with. And the, and the people are asked things about their their mental health and among other things. And so they're able to get a pretty good idea. And as you say, to kind of cross-tabulate it right. with police shootings. Right. And they were able to do this by, um, by state. And that's basically how they got their outcomes. They looked at uh, individual uh, police shootings within each and every state. And as you said, hundreds of thousands of people involved in this survey. So we're not talking about small sampling sizes. We're, we're talking about right. significant populations. Um, and so what they found was, I mean, they basically looked at the dates where people surveyed, reported um, having suffered from depression or anxiety uh, or, you know, any of the many, the, the various kinds of uh, mental health disorders um, that, that one can suffer from. And they found that for African-Americans, uh, basically a lot more of them reported having these poor mental health bouts um, within a month or two of being exposed to uh, news reports of an unarmed African-American being shot or killed by the police. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a remarkable thing. Let's break it down a little bit. Of that roughly 100,000 African-American respondents to the survey, they were able to find almost 40,000 who were in a state which had at least one of these events. And they were very careful to be uh, – uh, to, to describe exactly what they were looking for, a police shooting of an unarmed black man. And within that study period of a year, mm-hmm. um, those – 40 or so thousand people reported that they had an increase in the number they were I should say it differently they had an increased number of bad mental health days depression anxiety and so forth right and with that that was compared to other populations too right and it, it was compared to other racial populations um, it also was compared to uh, you know, the days reported after an armed African-American person was shot. As uh, the, well. Yeah, this is interesting. And, yeah. yeah. And so uh, what they found was that, you know, um, so in the days and months after an armed African-American person was shot by police, uh, you, you know, they found a little, you know, there was not a significant number of days of Poor mental health reported by African Americans, right? So, so right. that let us know that you know it's very specific to uh, people seeing or hearing or reading about an unarmed African American and then having a mental, you know, having days of, men- of poor mental health afterwards. When they looked at the data for white people who had been exposed to uh, people who had been shot by the police, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was no significant data of, uh, of poor mental health days reported by white people who took this survey, um, whether the victim was armed or unarmed, white or black, um, they just didn't see it. This was a very specific finding right. for black people who um, 
who were exposed to the shootings of unarmed African Americans and having uh, reported again several you know days of poor mental health, uh, you know as much as two to three months after being exposed uh, to those um, police shootings. Yeah, let's let's yeah. pull some of that apart even a little bit more. Okay, a month to two to three months—that is a very significant. Thing. So it's not just in the first reporting of, of a tragedy when, you know, a, a lot of people might might feel it pretty sharply. Right. This is something that lasts and actually comes to a, its highest point a month after the report. And again, these are people who, for the most part, don't even know the victim. Right. right. These, are, these are just people who have been – they've just heard about it. They saw it on the news. They may have seen uh, an update on Facebook. Uh, they may have seen uh, because of you know what's called the Facebook effect, uh, Facebook Live effect. They may have right. seen the actual shooting. We, I mean, we can point to the uh, the killing of the unarmed teenager Antoine Rose yes. uh, in East Pittsburgh, uh, a portion of which was captured on Facebook Live and was redialed and rerun, you know, across many Facebook timelines. Um, not to mention the news and other uh, online outlets. So you're you're, you're talking about the the spillover effect is kind of uh, is kind of multiplied by the uh, the, the spread and the distribution, uh, you know, of these videos. Right. So in former days, if there would have been something on on TV or even on cable TV, I mean, well past the time of the three networks, right. uh, it would get around. But now videos are posted so quickly and right. they get around so much more to so many different people. I mean, that was where I first saw the the Antoine Rose incident. It was on Facebook. Right. And yeah. since mm-hmm. so many people are on that, it spreads Right. Uh, really, really rapidly. And these videos, I mean, they also circulate through Twitter, uh, Snapchat. Sure. Um, it's very hard to avoid. You know, maybe someone on your timeline is running this video. You don't want to see it. Yeah. So you block that person. But then five other people on your timeline have it. So, you know, it's it was, you know, it was bad back when Rodney King was right, killed right. by, you know, or sure. not killed, but 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 beat, beat up by yes. the LAPD back in 1991. I mean, that video, I remember as a kid, like that video was played at Infinitum, you yes. know, on, mm-hmm. on TV networks. But, you know, I had the liberty of turning the channel, right, you know, right. whereas it's a right. little bit more difficult these days. Yeah, so. it's, it's impossible to get yeah. away from it. Right. Um, so, uh, again, let's uh, – it's worth pulling this apart. Right. We see this happening over a period of weeks and months even. The right. effect is sustained. We don't see it with shootings – of uh, even of other black people who are not unarmed. I said that backwards. Who are armed. Who are armed, right? Right. And that says something significant too. It is. I mean, we, and I, I spoke with the researchers. Um, there's not a full explanation as for why that is. Um, I guess you can say the general human condition in trying to compartmentalize these traumatic events we see, we could say, well, the person was armed, and so maybe they tried to shoot back at the police. Uh, you know, we don't know, but what, but what we're finding is that when it comes to armed victims of police shootings, you're not seeing as many mental health days reported afterward. Right. That's the clear result. Right. And also, it does not seem to have the same impact in the white population, right. uh, or uh, and, and nor does uh, the shooting of an unarmed white person have any impact in, the, in either population, white or black. 
Right. Exactly. I mean, one can argue that we don't hear and see about white victims of police shootings. Right. Those don't get as, around as much. Right. So, yes. And I don't want to put thoughts into the researchers' um, heads or, or words into their reports. Um, again, these aren't elaborately dissected as to why um, we're not seeing the same kind of, you know, uh, amount of mental health day, poor mental mm-hmm, health days mm-hmm. with white Americans. But, you know, again, speaking with the researcher, he did mention that at least when it comes to white people who have been exposed to unarmed black people um, not reporting poor mental health days, that that could just be a rollover of the legacy of racism where, again, they may believe that the black person deserved it. Had know? it coming. Right. Right. Exactly. That kind of mindset wouldn't be that surprising, but you're right to be cautious and say, we don't know. Right. We don't know. All we know is we don't see the same impact on their mental health reported uh, in the short or long term. Yeah. And we also know that, uh, that there are disparities in the health system. Um, and that's, that is really true. Right. Yes. You know, the white people is, is, there could be white people who are impacted mentally by seeing these things, but they were able to see a doctor. A yes. psychologist immediately mm-hmm. um, get medicine immediately, treatment immediately. Whereas Talk it out, whatever. African Americans, again, because of the disparities in the health system, they may not have access to mental health resources to kind of help them cope with what they're seeing. Uh huh. So um, the, the 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 last piece that I think we really want to pull this, make sure we get, which is kind of where we started, mm-hmm. is that the people who are affected, these forty or so thousand people, these right. are not family members, or close circles of friends. Right. So people have heard this on the radio, seen it on Facebook, whatever it is, but these are people at a distance. Right, randomly exposed to it or you know, intentionally exposed to it, but, but these are not people who have a direct connection to the victim right. at all. Um, right. So as we think about these terrible incidents, mm-hmm. we really have to reckon with this as one of the essential costs beyond the loss of life, the shattering of the family, the litigation, the upset in the city, whatever it is, uh, all of those things that we normally think of, this has to be added to it. And the researchers say, you know, they're sort of their compartment for each group was, was it in your state? Right. And we all know we could live in places where we would get news from several states. I mean, right. here in southwest Pennsylvania where we're sitting, we might get news of something like this from West Virginia or Ohio and vice versa. Right. So the effect could actually be a bit understated from what we're seeing here. But this is how they did the research. Yeah, absolutely. So the, yeah. the damage from these incidents – is much greater in a new way. I think that's what what this uh, what I see here. Right, as the researchers are calling it, it's it's a spillover effect, and and I think you kind of have to account for those externalities. I mean, when we when we talk about police reform um, and we talk about better training for police, uh, especially in trying to de-escalate, for example, mm-hmm. uh, a situation. Sure. And when we talk about why. Uh, police should not use lethal weapons or, or any of the reforms that we're talking about. It's, it's not just, again, it's not just because of the burden that's placed on uh, the family of the victim that, in, that a police officer may have shot, as bad as that is. Um, but also, you have to kind of take into account that, again, because of the era that we live in, that 
any that the kind of shootings that we're seeing are having this kind of uh, multiplier effect where they're they're affecting much more than just the victim and the victim's family. They're affecting broad communities. They're affecting people across the entire state, and it's falling hardest on African Americans. Let's take a quick break here. We're with journalist Brenton Mock of City Lab. We're talking about the spillover effect of police shootings and other violence. We'll be right back. Stay with us. You've got questions about criminal justice, and we've got the answers. And we can't give you legal advice, but if you want to know more about something you heard on the show, maybe something you read in the news, or just something you've always wondered about that sprawling mess we call the criminal justice system, leave a message with your question at 412-407-3389. You just might hear the answer in a future episode. Be sure to include your first name and where you're calling from. You can also submit your questions or feedback online by visiting criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Again, the phone number for your questions is 412-407-3389. 412-407-3389. Hi, David Harris with you for Criminal Injustice, and we're with journalist Brenton Mock. He is with CityLab.com, and we're talking about his article concerning the spillover effects on black Americans of various kinds of violence, both police-sourced and otherwise. Before the break, we were talking about the uh, the work in The Lancet uh, on the effect of police shootings of unarmed black people and the spillover effects that has. It turns out you were able to see another study uh, from a different group of researchers from the journal Sociology of Education, and this involved students in schools who had been exposed to violence of one kind or another and their peers. And again, this was an effort to not just look at the direct impact for somebody who maybe loses a classmate or a, a family member or sees a violent act in the street, but the, the, the one step removed. Talk about this other study. Yeah, this is from a researcher from John Hopkins University, Julia Burdick-Will, who's done a lot of research on this topic, basically the impacts of violence on uh, young people. And for this latest uh, study, she looked at the effects of um, of violence across across for students across uh, the Chicago public school system, and what she found was was that um, basically. When looking at academic performance for students, uh, she found poor outcomes no matter, you know, what school she looked at, no matter what neighborhood these schools were located at. Um, she found evidence of poor academic outcome if there were students who had been exposed to violence in those schools. Um, so meaning it didn't really matter what the overall socioeconomic uh profile was of a school. It didn't even matter what where the school was located, right. whether the school was located in a neighborhood not known for having a lot of violence or whether it was mm-hmm. located in a neighborhood that had high levels of violence. Um, if there were students in the classrooms in any of these schools that had been exposed to violence, that in and of itself led to um, a spillover effect to other classmates, which led to poor academic outcomes um, in those other students, um, even if those students were not directly exposed to violence. It's so interesting. You know, it's again, it's this sort of idea almost of violence as a contagion right. that's out in the atmosphere. A, a very interesting thing that we should note about Chicago public schools, 
wasn't the case when I was growing up. But now if you're a Chicago public school student, you can uh, go to any school in the system. So you might live in neighborhood one, but go to school across the city in neighborhood 10. If they'll take you. If yeah. they'll take you, right? right. <laughs> yeah. there, are, there are rules. There are lotteries even for certain places right. and testing in for others. Right, but, but it's a citywide school choice That's right. Yeah. So a student who is exposed in his or her own neighborhood right. could be in a school somewhere else, as you say, in a much safer area by using crime statistics or something. But that idea of carrying the effect with you remains. Right. And I, and I think um, we could probably attribute that to uh, the same kind of social media socialization process that we spoke about with the with the prior study. Whereas, you know, these kids, they come into the classroom just because, you you know, if you come from Englewood, one of the more most yes. violent neighborhoods in Chicago, and mm-hmm. you end up going to, uh, I don't know, North Chicago, I'm blanking on the neighborhoods for some reason. <laughs> uh-huh. But if you go to a, you know, if you end up to be lucky enough to end up in a in a a, a, a safer school, so to speak, in one of the um, lower violence, uh, lower like, let's least say Edison Park, a lot Edison of police, yeah, yeah, yeah. People, a lot of people live there who are police officers. So you know, yeah, I mean, these you know, these kids come in and you know. They're socializing, they're Snapchatting, they're, you know, As talking kids with each other. Yeah. Sure. And so, you know, kids who may have, but for being in proximity to a, to, uh, a, a student from Englewood, uh, would have never been exposed to uh, the trauma of knowing that a, a kid your age was shot and killed. Um, now they have much more proximity and much more access to these kinds of kids. And so... Uh, and it's having an effect. It's not like these kids it, that from this study, it sounds like it's not just that these kids are, you know, are in proximity to it and they're talking about it, but it's actually having an effect on their academic performance. Right. Because when yeah. we know that when children are exposed to violence, there is a drag on their economic and their academic performance. And we often see behavioral issues, too, cropping up. Right. Um, is that also true amongst the peers of those students? It is. Uh, the, the study that we're referring to, they, they find not only um, kind of poor academic outcomes, but they're also seeing elevated levels of uh, behavioral problems, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more likely to be suspended. Uh, more likely to be, you know, disciplined in some kind of way by the teacher, and that and that's owed to a number of factors itself. Um, you know, students right. coming in, they may not have as much trust in the teacher as an authority figure, um, based off of what they've been exposed to, if they've been exposed to violence, and that you know can end up having a, its own kind of disruptive uh, impact on a classroom. Absolutely. And you add to that maybe school or state policies that we sort of refer to under the umbrella of school-to-prison pipeline, right. zero-tolerance policies, those kind of right. ideas where you're going to – any disruption is, you know, we're going to hand that to the school resource officer or even call the police. We're going to arrest people and so forth. And you have a kind of perfect storm of people pulling each other down. Right. And it's a you know I, I, it's it's the cumulative burden that's visited upon mm-hmm. a student, and you know I looked at both of these studies in the weeks after Antoine Rose was uh, shot by a police officer, was killed by a police officer in East Pittsburgh, and what I was specifically trying to do was kind of look at 
what that cumulative burden is going to look like for a kid that is going to Willing Hill School uh, right now, you know, mm-hmm. that's going into this semester. Uh, you know, not only will they have the spillover effect that we talked about from the prior study, just from being exposed to uh, the killing of uh, the police killing of Antoine Rose, you know, via media, both social right. and traditional media networks, but um, also being exposed to violence in general, both in their neighborhoods and within the school, um, that ends up compounding the kind of trauma uh, that we're seeing and impacting both, again, how that student is able, you know, what that student is about is able to take from school academically and how they are treated. Absolutely. From a discipline point of point of view. And, you know, Woodland Hills um, school district is. Which you've uh, wrote about in a couple of different pieces. Of yeah. Yours. It's, I mean, it's no stranger to, uh, to violence. Um, we've, you know, unfortunately several students, I think at last count, maybe five or six mm-hmm. Woodland Hills students um, have been killed in the last year alone on top of the, you know, horrendous record of abuse at the hands of their school resource people. officers yes. um, and mm-hmm. even its principal, its previous principal, um, you know, which is why Willow Hills schools are currently subject to a lawsuit. Um, so, I mean, we could kind of talk about this at the kind of academic level, but we have to, re- what I was really trying to do with writing about this is look at the mental burden, the emotional burden that these students are going to be carrying into the school, into these pr- specific schools who have been impacted not only by the uh, the killing of Antoine Rose, but just from the violence that they see every day in their neighborhoods and schools. Absolutely. And it is far from just an academic matter. It is real. It is a practical burden that they and their families will have to deal with, their schools will have to deal with. Um, and uh, we need as a society and as a city, since we're talking about Pittsburgh here right. specifically, to reckon with it. Because if there's one lesson that comes out of this particular study, it's that this idea, I think, that a lot of parents used to have that, well, my neighborhood school is a safe place. My neighborhood school right. is a good place, et cetera, et cetera. We can see that that kind of isolation, if it ever used to exist, it's really not a thing anymore, that that everything spills over into the full population, into the full city, even if certain students are first burdened. Right. Others come to share that burden and that disadvantage. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I started off talking about the Woodland Hills schools, but we know from the from both Julia Burdick Wills study and also the the study we talked about prior to this is that these problems are not isolated to one particular neighborhood or one particular school. And the kind of I don't know, nimbyish kind of attitude mm-hmm. that you were just referring my to backyard. where it's like it's not mm-hmm. in my not in my school's backyard or right. whatever. It's no, I mean these things are going to spill over across the city. So no one uh, in the the school district uh, where you know schools in Bethel Park can sit and say like, well, this this doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, no, I mean this is going to end up, uh, according to this study, it could very much end up impacting uh, the 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 performance of of kids in, in schools across the entire city. So as you pull together these two studies, as you did in your article, mm-hmm. uh, what are your big takeaways here? Um, uh, one of them is sort of what we've been talking about, how this means that there is no more isolation in terms of the effects of violence. How do you take that point or others? 
Yeah, my biggest takeaway is, again, it's, just, it's the cumulative burden. And I think um, oftentimes we kind of look at, when we're looking at a student, a student that may be performing academically poorly or even behaving poorly, we kind of try to isolate that student out and say, you know, uh, well, what neighborhood did he come from or, you know, what family background does she have? Sure. You know, what what can we do for this particular individual student? And I don't think that that's going to carry anymore. I, I think the research from this study alone shows that schools are going to have to start taking a little bit more of a macro approach, right, and looking at how the impacts of violence, both police violence and violence throughout the city, is having an impact across an entire school network. And they will have to, I think schools will have to start putting more resources into mm-hmm. addressing that, uh, again, from a cumulative burden perspective, from a macro perspective, and not just from uh, seeing how you can help one individual uh, student. It, it's going to have to be looked at uh, from a much broader perspective. Um, and I've read numerous stories um, just in the past few days about schools, um, students going back to school this year where security is being stepped up, more yeah. metal detectors, mm-hmm. more uh, security guards, police mm-hmm. officers, yes, I've seen school them too. resource officers. And in some ways, you know, it doesn't really address what we're talking about here. I mean, yes. th- these are, you know, maybe the metal detector is a preventative measure, but if you're putting more police officers in a school, then these are people, these are law enforcement officers who can only respond or react to a violent episode, mm-hmm. um, the resources would probably have to be matched, if not exceeded, in helping students to cope with the kind of violence that they're seeing, meaning more guidance counselors, more mental right. health counselors, more mental health resources in general. And perhaps not just for the students, but for the families and communities in general, Again, given what we know about these kind of spillover effects, not just from the students, but from people in general. And the spreading of that trauma, it, it pays no attention to municipal boundaries, school right. district boundaries, any of those things. And so I, I'm left with a very similar feeling I have when I look at all these little small police departments in our county. We have the big right. dog, which is Pittsburgh, a some sort of smaller dog, which is the county police. Right. And then we have a hundred other police departments. Right. And yet we know that crime and the things in back of it spread across the region. Exactly. And the lack of planning, the lack of policies and so forth in police departments are spread across the region. If we don't look at this from a bigger perspective, right. uh, we'll always be fighting the same little battles and wondering if our own little corner of something is OK when really the problems pay no attention to those lines. Right. I mean, and bringing it back to Antoine Rose again unarmed young black man who was killed by police, by East Pittsburgh police officers. Um, What does it mean for each of the municipalities um, in that area where Rose was killed, uh, East Pittsburgh, North Braddock, Braddock, all having Mm -hmm. their own individual police departments, but there being no hospital in that particular region. In fact, the one hospital that did exist in Braddock was closed. So you don't need, they have police departments in these areas, but you have a lack of health resources. So There's true. no trauma center. Yeah. You know, um, how do we kind of re, re, you know, re-ratio that where, mm-hmm. you know, there actually are more people who are there to help students and families deal with and cope with violence 
poverty and less just kind of law enforcement, armed law enforcement people who are just kind of reacting to violence, compounding the violence, actually. Yes, and it's such a good example, the hospital example, because, of course, in our region, uh, we've got two competing hospital giants that can't build hospitals fast enough, just right. not there. Right. Right. So we have – we don't have a, a shortage of hospitals. We have a, short, a, a poor distribution of resources, and this brings us back again to the idea of distributing resources both across the region and right. not just to the one half of the problem, the discipline or something like that. Right. We have to look at the full picture of how everyone is suffering from this sort of citywide trauma when these incidents occur. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad you came in to speak with us today. Thanks for having me on. Glad All to be right. on again. Great. Yeah. Brenton Mock is a veteran journalist who writes for the Atlantic's CityLab.com. He covers many justice-related issues, particularly related to law enforcement. His article we've discussed here is called Police Killings Are Driving Black People Crazy. It's in City Lab. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks for having me on, as always. it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly is an update with new information from the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online. Longtime listeners to Criminal Injustice may remember the story of two lawyers from the Prenda Law Firm. Lawyers Paul Hansmeyer and John Steele came up with an ingenious scheme to make some money using the copyright laws in an unorthodox way. Step one, set up some sham companies and use them to obtain copyrights to lots of porn films. Step two, to increase the number of copyrights to porn you have, go ahead and make some of your own porn films. Yes. Step three, put the porn up on movie file sharing services known for illegal downloading. Step four, when people download the porn, file copyright suits for illegal downloading against, quote, John Doe downloaders, not letting on, of course, that the lawyers filing the actions actually own the copyrights and are looking to get paid. Step five, when the identity of John Doe downloader is revealed in discovery, lawyers Hansmeyer and Steele would then send now-identified people letters threatening legal action unless the downloaders paid a settlement of about $3,000. The implication, of course, was that failure to pay would result in disclosure of John Doe's real identity in the course of litigation. Those who did pay submitted the money to another company created by Hans Meyer and Steele called... Under the Bridge Consulting, yes, which turned around and funneled the money right back to them. 
All told, these lawyers behaving badly netted about $3 million. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Minnesota says $6 million, but hey, who's counting at that point? Not bad for setting up a few companies, sending out some pro-former complaints and discovery, and threatening letters. Except, of course, that the whole thing was a fraud. When we last checked in, lawyer Steele had pled guilty to federal conspiracy charges of mail fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering. And he agreed to become a cooperating witness against Hansmeyer, who allegedly masterminded the whole thing. Now here's the update. Lawyer Hansmeyer has now entered his own guilty plea to a set of lovely matching charges. He's reserved the right to appeal based on an earlier motion that a judge should have dismissed the case. He's also suspended from law practice indefinitely. I hear a disbarment coming soon. And was also ordered to pay 81000 in costs for abusive litigation tactics. As part of the agreement, prosecutors agreed not to seek a sentence exceeding 150 months in prison, with the judge determining the ultimate sentence and an agreement not to bring potential charges of bankruptcy fraud. 150 months. Think Hansmeyer knows how to divide by 12? Well, hey, lawyer Hansmeyer, don't worry. I think you might be in the movie business again. This time is the subject of a barely believable, based on a true story film. I can hear the pitch now. Lawyer with no shame figures out a way to make millions by threatening porn users with public shaming. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that does it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact info, but we will not share that. Again, the number is 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments. Or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389 or online criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Since the creation of the first SWAT teams in the 1960s, militarized police units have multiplied. SWAT teams can rescue hostages or handle emergencies, but are they used that way? Do they actually increase public safety? And what's the impact on the public and on police officers? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Podcast.com.